Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. When you call 911, it most likely means you're having a stressful, unpredictable, scary experience. It could be the worst day of your life or someone else's. It could also be a totally absurd call, like this one from a Hartford woman back in 2016. At the 911 location of the emergency. I order a small pizza, half cheese, and half bacon, and they bring me a half hamburger. So I come them back, and they don't want to give my money back. So whether it's ridiculous, deadly, serious, or anything, and I mean anything, in between, what's it like on the other side of that call? Today, hear about life as an emergency dispatcher here in Connecticut, throughout the country, and even during the massive temporary city in the desert that is Burning Man. Plus, what's the future of 911 technology, and how will that affect dispatchers psychologically? I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. The last time I called 911, I wasn't sure I was supposed to. My wife Emily and I are out walking our dog, and we see a woman who'd rollerbladed into a ditch. And at first glance, she looks okay. She's sitting upright. She's responding normally to the three other women around her, one being a friend she was rollerblading with, and the other two being nurses who happened upon the scene. I see that she's got a few scrapes and bruises, a little bit of road rash on her arm, no big deal. But we see some blood beginning to pool right where she's sitting down on the asphalt. As a group, even the nurses, we ask, should we call 911? No, she seems fine. I mean, she's totally with it. She's calm. She seems okay. All she really wants to do is get back to her friend's car in the parking lot so they can go to the hospital and get her checked out. But as we try to figure out how to make that happen, the pool of blood underneath her bottom is getting bigger and bigger. She tells Emily, who's also a nurse, that she's beginning to feel dizzy. We all agreed. It's time to call 911. When you call 911, they can see the name of the person who owns your phone account. They can tell more or less where you are. They can see if you've called before, when, and how many times. The person picking up that call could be new to the job. They could be a 33-year veteran. They could be overworked and underpaid. They could be surrounded by school children on a tour of the facilities. They, they could have just finished a call with someone whose child isn't breathing or with someone who's complaining about their TV not turning on. And in those first moments of your phone call, you're trying to stay calm and find the words to most efficiently explain what the hell is going on. This dispatcher is listening to the way that you're breathing. They're listening to the emotional sound of the first words out of your mouth so they can react as fast and as effectively as possible to what could be the absolute worst day of your life. Today, what it's like being a 911 dispatcher. And a word of warning, you're going to hear some uplifting and even funny stories, but 
you're also going to hear about a few very difficult calls. Whether you keep listening or not, be sure to take care of yourself. You'll hear from two women who worked for decades in this field, and you'll hear a few stories from a volunteer 911 dispatcher for the famous temporary community in the desert that is Burning Man. But first, Clayton Northgrave started as a dispatcher and worked his way up to be the director of emergency telecommunications for the state of Connecticut. I asked him to tell me about a few stories that have stuck with him over his 28-year career. There was one call that just kind of has always stuck with me. It was a, a woman who called 911, and um, she was surprisingly calm. She was just like, hi, uh, I need an ambulance. And I'm like, okay, what's the problem? Tell me exactly what happened. And she's like, oh, my baby uh, had just strangled himself in the swing set. Literally the rope, she went outside and was wrapped around the child's neck and the child was not breathing. And I just, I, at first I was like, is this a joke? Like, are you hearing this right? Because she was so calm. Yeah. She was so incredibly calm. I mean, usually you expect a call like that, the mother to be hysterical, but she was just, and I I was like, okay. I was like, where's the baby now? She's like, she's outside by the swing set. I said, okay, I'm going to tell you how to do CPR. Like, so get the phone as close to the child as possible. You know, I want you to look, listen, feel for breath, look for chest rise and fall. And, you know, she, I walked her through CPR on this child and she did CPR until the ambulance got there. And um, I don't believe the child made it. But I was just, I, that, that one just stuck with me because, you know, just the mother was just so calm. I mean, we get calls for children all the time. And I mean, even when children have a tiny cut on their finger, their parents are generally, they have lost it. I mean, a broken bone is like the end of end the of world. The world. <laughs> you know? It's the apocalypse, pretty much. There was another call. This is a little more lighthearted. I didn't personally take the call, but I want to share the story because my name shall live in infamy and Google for, uh, so there was a, when I was managing the Hartford 911 Center, uh, one of my call takers uh, said to me after a call, said, Clayton, I just got the most unusual call. And I said, why? What happened? And she said, this woman called 911 because the pizza place had put the wrong toppings on her pizza. And I said, are, are you kidding? And ironically, I had a news crew there or a couple of days later. Uh, because we had actually saved a woman's life and it was like the old rescue 911 show. We had the family come into the dispatch center and they were hugging, you know, obviously way before COVID. And, uh, you know, it was just this great scene. And I can't remember the reporter's name, but I was walking around to the building. She's like, oh my God, all the calls you get are so serious. She's like, it's got to be such a tough job. I said, not all of them. I said, we got a call the other day where this woman was complaining because she got the wrong pizza top. And she's like, oh, can you give me that call? And I'm like, yeah, I just have to clear it with the PIO first, who happened to be Brian Foley. And uh, so they said, yeah, go ahead and give her the call. And that got to that news outlet. I can't remember which one it was, Channel 3, NBC, who, who it was. But then my phone, literally my cell phone blew up with the amount of people that wanted to do the story on the pizza top. <laughs> so if you Google to this day, I just did it right before this. If you Google Clayton Northgraves and pizza, I mean, it was like even Time Magazine online, there was a little <laughs> blurb about this pizza call. And you can actually listen to the call. I actually listened to it this morning. So they're not all life and death. I just have a question. Mm -hmm. If I order a pizza and they don't want to give me my money back, can you guys do something? Ma'am, um, 
I'm not sure that's something you have to take up with them, but that's not something you would dial 911 for. Right, 911 is for life-threatening emergencies only. Oh, can you call the pizzeria or something? Well, what happened? Because then I ordered a small pizza, half cheese, and half bacon, and they give, and they bring me a uh, half hamburger. So I called them back, and they don't want to give my money back. They keep hanging on me. Okay, yeah, that that's not a police matter, ma'am. You'll have to work that out with the pizza shop. So when someone calls 911, and it is not, it was not the right thing to do, what do you say? So it depends on the situation. And each 911 center has their own policies and procedures, but the ones that I worked in and the ones that I managed, that if they're adamant about seeing a police officer or getting an ambulance, then you just send them. Because again, you're just talking to this person on the phone. You don't know what's going on there. I mean, this could be code for they're in some type of domestic situation. You know, I mean, even that pizza call, the dispatchers are trained, you know, if somebody starts acting funny or has some type of outlandish, crazy request, that it could be something else going on. You just don't know. And you just sort of trust your instincts as an experienced 911 operator. Absolutely. Speaking of calling 911 and and speaking in code, so in the last couple of years, people can text 911, which is so beautiful because if you're in a situation where your voice will give you away or whatever, that's brilliant. But you also know about some plans for future, like next generation 911 stuff. Will you tell me what the future of 911 is looking like? Yeah. Up until uh, a few years ago, we were on, and still what most of the country is on, is referred to as a legacy 911 system. You know, old school phone technology, you know, when you used to pick up, you have to pick up your line and dial, you know, over copper circuits and whatnot. So, Connecticut was on the forefront and transitioned every 911 center and every 911 uh, position in the state to next generation 911. The best part of that is what we just talked about. One of the cool things we can do now is we can send a text. If you pull up your uh, mobile phone and you put 911 in the text field, you get connected to a 911 operator um, and they have a little terminal on their screen and they can text you back. And it's pretty awesome for a, you know, a host of different reasons. And so this next generation 911 makes that possible. And so it also makes possible pictures and video to 911. And although the technology is there to implement it today, the policies and procedures are kind of lacking. And that's nationally, that's not just Connecticut. So that's such a game changer in our field. We don't even know how it's going to work at this point. There are you know, national conversations being had with our industry organizations. There's the National Emergency Number Association who has working groups working on this. We have APCO, uh, which is another national uh, group that's working on this as well. But as a 911 operator myself in my former life, I can't even begin to fathom watching the scene unfold as opposed to listening to it. You could be exposing these dispatchers to you know, very, very horrific imagery. And there's a whole slew of things that could be associated with that. I mean, some dispatchers can get PTSD now, and now you're introducing pictures and video I mean, it's it's one thing to hear somebody screaming on the phone and, you know, describing a situation. It's a completely different situation to FaceTime it to a dispatcher. That's going to be tough. There's been talk of uh, video dispatchers, you know, changing positions, maybe putting 
higher trained professionals in the dispatch center, like nurses and maybe even doctors, who knows? But yeah, it, it opens up such a realm of possibilities and not just for, you know, medical as well, you know, police and fire as well. I mean, imagine, you know, for a firefighter, you know, if they're driving to a fire and we're able to stream to them the structure and if they could see, wow, the fire's on the second floor, on the right side of the house, while they're responding, they can start formulating an attack plan. I mean, and it's just, there's so many cool things, but there's also some scary things that are going to be challenging to us as well. Law enforcement, crime scene management. I mean, imagine having that real-time video for court cases and whatnot. If someone was really intrigued with the idea of going into dispatch, what words of wisdom would you give them? For anybody looking to go into this field, really do a hard assessment and ask if this is the right thing for you. If you're prone to anxiety, maybe not, because there is so much anxiety involved in this field. You know, if you are a very emotional person, you have to realize you have to stay calm for these people, because if your emotion matches their emotion, you're not providing them the help that they deserve. It's just, it can get extremely, extremely stressful. But it is, it can be the most rewarding job. I mean, delivering a child over the phone or, you know, uh, helping somebody with an airway obstruction, uh, you know, performing CPR, those are the things that are so rewarding. When you find out you have a positive patient outcome and it does not happen often, it is very, very rewarding. But it also, again, it comes with a lot of stress and anxiety as well. Well, Clayton Northgraves, thank you so much for talking with me and thanks for all you do. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. The next voice you're going to hear belongs to Wanda Brown. In addition to being the aunt of Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, the host of Connecticut Public Show Disrupted, which you can hear at 2 p.m. on Wednesdays and Sundays, Wanda worked dispatch for 27 years in Lynchburg, Virginia. She retired in 2018. I asked her to tell me how she got into this gig. It basically was a fluke, to be perfectly honest with you. I had a friend who needed a ride to an interview. The interview that she needed to ride to was for the dispatch center. And I said, well, I wasn't too happy with the job I was doing. I was working at City Hall in the tax office, actually. Oh, so you're used <laughs> to taking some abuse. Good. Yeah, so I figured if I'm going to be abused, I may as well, you know, <laughs> have the right job title. And um, it was a pretty low-paying job, and I decided to try something else. So we, I said, well, I'll apply too. I didn't get the job. She did. <laughs> never Humbling. Never take you know, someone with you to apply for the same job. <laughs> However, you know, a couple of years later, I applied again and they selected me and it, it went from there. Once I got in, I had, really didn't plan on being there long. I said, well, this will be good for two or three years, you know, something extra, something different to do. And 30 years later, I retired. Because this is such a stressful job, a rewarding job, but also a really stressful one. Besides when you retired, had you ever thought about leaving? Um, weekly, monthly, sometimes daily. But then I would answer the next call and you'd hear thank you or I knew that I'd made a difference. And so I said, well, I'll stay a little longer. You know, I know I'm helping people. I mean, every job, you have your good days and bad days. Unfortunately, you tend to have more bad days because people don't call 911 to say they're having a good day. So, you know, beforehand, you're already prepared for the worst. You hope for the best. 
but you're there with people in their worst day of their life. And it's kind of it gets kind of hard sometimes because we don't know the outcome a lot of times. To what degree do you think that not knowing the outcome of most of these calls psychologically, emotionally protected you, though? It's a double-edged sword. It can be because you can decide what happened in your mind and just leave it there. You also, I don't know if others have done it, and I finally over the years had to make myself stop. I would read the obituaries to see if I recognize certain names. And I caught myself, I didn't realize I was doing it. And I caught myself doing it. And I had to steer away from it because I'd see names. And you know, some of these people, I was the last person they talked to. And, and you know, it can, it can get in your psyche. And, but you have to care. But then at the end of that call, things again, you, you know, you've got to go to the next one. So, and we have fun times too. We've had a lot of laughs. <laughs> It's best, and we've had a lot of calls that are um, quite memorable. So, oh yeah, tell me about a few calls. Everybody who has ever dispatched has that one call that they will never forget, and I still remember mine. It, I had been there probably six months, and I, to this day, I still remember that one. It's always that one call that shakes you to your core, and it was an industrial accident, and I won't go into it, but it just. It was horrible, but I still remember it, you know, and it was a young, it was a young fella and it was just a real odd accident that would never happen in a hundred years, but it happened on my watch. Luckily, the supervisor I had was just really, really kind at that time and just kind of like, you know, go down the hall, take a few minutes and just pulled me off the radio. It's a good thing she did. I mean, I, I would have stayed. She said, nope, time for you to take a walk. And you have to do that. And then you have to regroup. And then you come back and someone calls you because the dog pooped in their yard. So it's like whiplash on a level that's... uh, But one equals out the other. You know, if you have all horrible calls, you're just going to pull your hair out. Because you've had to figure out, like, how to live with these images in your head... Have you developed like a way of compartmentalizing these memories so you can just keep going on? And do you just do you just keep them compartmentalized? Like, do they just stay there? You share them with people who understand them, which usually the more the other dispatchers or file crew or the PD officers that responded for other first responders. You can't really share with your family much. My parents, you know, they're, they're both since passed away. But when I started, you know, they were both here. You don't want them to worry. Even though my parents were strict radioholics, they had the scanners. <laughs> it would drive me crazy. I'd go over to the house. First thing I'd do was turn the scan off. What happened? And they know I, they, they knew what happened. And, I, you know, they been, and they were real good about not asking me details. Because they knew I couldn't, you know, get them really details. So they never put me in that position to even ask. But they could tell when I had a really, really bad day. And we had outlets. The biggest outlet would be somebody would crack the worst joke, a joke that a normal person would think they are the worst people in the world. They're all going to hell. 
but you'd have to be in that situation to realize that's just a coping mechanism. We had a really, really sick sense of humor. You, you have to. And then someone would call and say, you know, the dog was talking to him again. And, you know. What's it like for you when a kid calls? Scares me to my very soul. I have lots of nieces and nephews and I automatically put them in that place, but it helps me because I know how to talk to a three-year-old because I've had to. And I mean, it's totally different. You still have to go by protocol, but you learn over the years. A nine-year-old can't, it's not going to be the same as a three-year-old, but a three-year-old can get it done. They're very smart. Sometimes I'd rather talk to the children it can be better but yeah it can be scary when it's really a serious call you talk to them on a whole different level you use names there's no ma'am what's your name how old are you you have to get them involved in the conversation and you got to probably make them feel imagine they're scared yeah. whether they show it or not or whether they even know it, how to process what they're seeing or not you have to you know, if you're talking to me, you might be all business. But if you're talking to a three-year-old and mommy fell down the stairs, like you exactly. got to. But it can be the same sometimes. Yeah, sometimes talking to an adult is a lot harder than talking to a child. Because if your father can't breathe and you're normally a happy-go-lucky person, you turn into a monster. Been there and done that. You know, I've, I was working when family members have been sick. And I know what, you know, the nicest person in the world, the most sensible person in the world can turn into a complete butt when it's someone close to them that's in need of help. So, and you have to remember that it's not, when I'm training, and I was a training officer as well, and I also taught at the academy, and you have to separate, they're not talking to you, they're talking to the voice, because you just naturally, when someone's yelling and cursing at you, and just get them here and they won't answer the questions. You don't mean to take it personally, but you automatically do. And you got to realize that they're not talking to you. You've mentioned prayer. Is it safe to say that you're you're religious or you're spiritual? You, you believe in God? Yeah. And I've had lots of questions. That's what I'd like to hear a bit more about. Because you hear a lot of cruelty and suffering, uh, what kind of questions, what kind of things do you say to God when you talk? Yeah, why did you let that baby burn up in the house? Stuff like that. The worst, the worst of the worst calls. I finally had to come to the realization that I'm not going to understand everything. And I had to leave it there. There was no explanation that would cover it. And I had to realize that he knows best or she knows best. They know best. They know best. And I had to leave it there, and I have to do that now. And one thing that helped me, too, just before my mom passed, she died of cancer. And I remember one day she said, she asked God why he, that was her biggest fear in life, was getting cancer. And she ended up with cancer. Um, she asked the Lord one day, why her? Why, why would you put this on me? And she said, and then I realized, why not me? And I was okay. I mean, I wasn't okay. I lost my mom. But you, I understood if she could see it that way, and she was the one suffering, then I had to be able to let it go too. So a lot of things like work-related, 
personal related, just life related. That's my stance now. I don't understand it. I'm not going to. I just have to let it go and it will come to fruition. It'll make sense by and by. It's like the old spiritual, it'll, we'll understand it better by and by. Um, I sing that a lot. Um, <laughs> what advice do you have for someone who is listening to this show and they feel compelled to look into this as a career? If you want the satisfaction of helping people, I'd say go for it in a minute. It, it's it just it's really really worth. It. You come home sometimes, you're so proud of yourself. You just warm and fuzzy, and then you come home sometime and you just cry yourself to sleep. But it's a little bit of both, so keeps you grounded. Well, Wanda Brown, thank you so much for talking with me, and thank you for all that you've done. You're welcome. I enjoy it. Me too. Okay, bye-bye. When we get back. You can't train to every single call because it's playing Russian roulette. You have no idea. And that was part of the exciting part. Hear from a 33-year dispatch veteran on the importance of addressing depression and PTSD in her field. Plus, what it's like being a 911 operator for the annual nine-day-long arts event that takes place in the middle of a desert, Burning Man. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Understand it better. For we'll understand it better. By and by. This is audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, 911 dispatchers talk about the pains and pride of the job and what they want you to know if you're interested in getting into this kind of work. A heads up, this episode features some difficult to hear stories and conversations at times. So if that's not your bag, feel free to take a break and come back for next week's show. In a little bit, you'll meet a 911 dispatch volunteer for Burning Man. But now I want you to meet Nancy Tatum from Westminster, Colorado. She worked in emergency dispatch for 33 years until she retired in 2017. We found her through a piece she'd written online advocating for more help for 911 dispatchers who experienced depression and PTSD. She brings me back to how her career in dispatch got started. A lot of dispatchers like me, um, we just fell into the job. I was a young single parent and I started originally dispatching in a small town on the western slope of Colorado, and it was a one-man show, and I couldn't get any idea what it was like. And then I moved back to Denver, where I'm from, and somebody knew someone at a dispatch center. And when I walked in, it was like NASA. From what I was used to, I was like, there's computers and several people, and it was pretty intimidating. But How soon did you feel like, okay... I know what I'm doing. I mean, it's a job with such an unpredictable nature, but, you know, of course, there's tons of training. So for you, were you like, I got this pretty soon out the gate? Or how long did it take until you finally really had a grip on the wildness of this job? We get a lot of training, but you don't have confidence for years. And just because every single call is different, there's, you have your training and how to deal with it, but 
you can't train to every single call. So every experience still happens and there's always that second guessing and that's kind of perpetual, I think, in the job. In those early days when you weren't as confident as you would become, <laughs> when the phone would ring and you had to press a button to take that call, what what happened in your brain? Was there sort of like a clearing out, like a, a broadening out? Like what was happening in your brain before those calls as you would take them? When I was new, it was terror. Because it's plain Russian roulette. You have no idea. And that was part of the exciting part. You know, there's nothing mundane. So... Was there a sort of allure to it, to that Russian roulette? Because that's that's risky and not everybody's into that. Not everybody can endure that. There's an appeal to adrenaline junkies. And sometimes the gorier or the most unusual or the most traumatic, the more exciting. And your your senses are going and the teamwork is going in the center to all work to get the fastest, most accurate response to these people. So when poop hits the fan, that's when you're at your best. And, but we're adrenaline junkies. That's, that's all others do it. Was that you? I was an adrenaline junkie. Oh yeah. Were you before this? Nope. (laughs) It turned you into one. I have like a sloth personality. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, I mean, I got into it. I had, I was a CNA. And then when I got into dispatch, there was still some of that medical part involved there and give medical instructions. So you're everything but seeing what's going on on the other side of the phone. It's, it's a lot, I think, traumatic to your senses. At what point did you think, I'm in over my head, there's something wrong? Um. I had a call and I I had been in the department for over 19 years. So I had that cockiness. I know what I'm doing. I've trained, I've handled everything. You know, there's nothing could throw me off. And I had the call that did. And it made me question my career choice and it rocked my world. And it was at that point and a couple of instances before where you have kids involved or your family and, but that was that was the biggie. That was my one PTSD incident. So dispatchers tend to they'll have one incident, but then they'll have like a bunch with it. It's it's congruent PTSD that they get. And I can tell you the story of the call if you guys want to hear it. Um, uh, this lady had called nine one one. She was her voice was um, panicked. Um, but shocky. And when you have a color that's breathing heavy for one, it kind of prepares you. It's like, this is going to be bad. Thank God she wasn't hysterical, which she felt like. Um, but she said, um, I just ran over my two-year-old son accidentally with a lawnmower. And on the inside, I was blown away. I felt so bad for her. And afterwards, when I hung up, I nitpicked my performance and how, how it could have gone. So um, he was two and he was hiding kind of around some bushes when she was mowing. He was supposed to be on this side of the yard in the playground with his little brother on the swing set. And she was mowing and there was a curve in the landscape and it got him. And so it's a 
a chopping suction motion, which I didn't think about either, as the first chop was his foot, then his thigh, and then he was eviscerated. And they were, they're farm folks, they're way outside of the metro area. The ambulance was way far out. And um, it, it just something, um, I call it the grace of God, but um, he ended up surviving. And I became friends with the family. I'm still friends with the family. I'm still, they call me their dispatch angel, but I just call myself a witness to miracles, what I do. So, um, but dispatchers today, I had that one, you know, that was like, that it was almost a career breaker, but dispatchers today get those all the time. They're not that kind, but that traumatic, that career breaking. They get it all the time now. And I have, I admire them. I admire them so much. Thank you for telling me about that. It came out lucky and good, so I can talk about it. Over the course of your career, you were diagnosed with severe depression and PTSD. Is there anything anyone could have done? I mean, they do have people you can talk with and you commiserate with your fellow dispatchers. And, And agencies are getting around to it where they're including dispatch in the debriefings. So if the fire, the police department, or EMS, they have some big call going on, they'll debrief it later. It gives everybody a chance to kind of that was involved to bring out their aspect. And they have professionally trained psychology people on hand, and um, they're able to get that out. And dispatch has never normally been included in that. Now it's happening. So I think the, the industry is really coming around finally. But... Um, have you heard of the 911 Saves Act by chance? Tell me about it. It's in Congress. What we're what the bill is trying to do and, and trying to reclassify dispatchers from clerical workers to first responders. That's a lot of reason why we're not getting these benefits. And Wait a minute, you are literally first responders. You are right? literally the first 911. It's your emergency. Yeah, <laughs> I'm surprised. Okay. Yeah, I and I think that just that connotation before when nine one one well when the first responders label came out, it was referring to people that actually respond. So Physically. innocently enough, but it ended up separating us, and we've been labeled still in most states, almost all of them, as clerical, secretarial, clerk. That's what we're mostly titled. So um, the nine one one saves act, and if everybody can Google it and just recognize your dispatchers as the first of the, we call us ourselves the first of the first responders. So it's a wonderful career it is a wonderful career. It's not for everybody, but if people have had adversity in their life and they're, you know, growing up, I had a lot of adversity or even people with ADHD and some, you know, they need that stimulus. They could be good dispatchers. Huh. So, yeah, it can appeal to some people that have a little quirks. <laughs> I bet there are people who are like, oh, yeah, I could do this job. And then they start and they're like, oh, no, I cannot oh, yeah. do this job. And people <laughs> like you who are like, oh, I kind of fell into it. And then it formed you around it in ways. Yes, I grew up in it. Yeah. So. Will you tell me about why you got a good citizenship award for the city of Commerce City for a 911 call you took from a 10 year old girl? What was that about? You guys did your homework. Come on, this is public radio. Come on, Nancy. (laughs) I was taking a 911 call from a terrified little girl. She was 
in a van, the family van with her two siblings, little siblings. I think she was 10 or 12. And mom was at the wheel going 65 miles an hour on the highway in a medical episode. She was diabetic and little girl didn't know where she was. She wasn't able to get mom to stop or even hear or understand her siblings or screaming. I got goosebumps talking about it. Uh, and between myself, my coworkers, the police department, we'd already gotten a call of a really reckless driver. And sometimes when people think they're seeing a drunk person, if it's real radical, it could be a health problem. So that's what we knew what it was right away. I talked to her. She knew where she was, but she knew landmarks and she was seeing stuff. So I was able to correlate where she was. We got the police in contact with them right away. And mom got off the highway and was stopped at a light. And the officer went in and had pulled the key out of the ignition, got her an ambulance, and they were all safe and sound. So um, one of the sergeants, the one that was involved in that call, um, wrote me up for how I communicated with this little girl. And I got to meet them too. It was wonderful. Will you talk about what it's like for you when you're taking a call from a kid? I mean, you're always, you know, improvising to some degree when you're answering any call, but with kids, you're really improvising, trying to understand what they're saying and getting a full picture and communicating back to them. What's that like for you? I love taking calls from kids because a lot of them don't have the danger senses, lessons, experiences to know to be afraid. So they're very innocent. Two, they're they're used to ask answering questions. Because as adults, we're always like, where are you been? What are you doing? What's in your hand? What did you know? In 911, you ask them a question, they're going to give you answers. So you just have to kind of change the lingo. If I was to ask a little one, you know, do you know your alphabet? They might not know that big a word. But if I said, hey, do you know your ABCs? And they're like, I'll sing you this song. <laughs> and you're like, okay, speed up the song. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm a lot better. <laughs> But yeah, there's a trick. There's a trick to talking to them. And I, I've had so many wonderful experiences. I, I keep thinking I got to write my book. Yes. I haven't yet, but I've, I've got some journaling. In. Well, what else do you want to make sure you say after everything? What haven't we talked about yet? Just recognition of those people. There's like 100,000 calls going in. Every one of them is listening to a loved one. You know, sometimes their last words. I don't know how many people I've had that I was the last person that they talked with. So, you know, we're unseen. Dispatchers are unseen. And the calls are so violent. People are carrying weapons all the time. And they're getting a lot of trauma. So my heart goes out to them. I admire the heck out of all 911 dispatchers. Just an amazing job. And there's some heroics that happen every single minute of the day in this country, thanks to them. Nancy Tatum, thank you so much for talking with me and thank you for all that you've done. Thank you. I'm a dispatcher. I can keep you here tomorrow. Just <laughs> <laughs> talk and talk. It doesn't go away. <laughs> after the break. It was a terrifying moment at first, but afterwards we all had a really good laugh about it. What it's like working dispatch for Burning Man. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back.
This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. You're staying in the middle of the northwestern Nevada desert for nine days with almost 80,000 other people. You see RVs and tents and tons of bikes. There are workshops, performances, spiritual sites, breathtaking costumes. You see giant structures, a spaceship, a pyramid, a temple, stairs suspended by wire that you can climb up as if you can ascend them all the way into the vastness of the desert landscape. And you even see signs that would lead you to a place where an untold number of consenting adults can enjoy each other in consenting adult ways. In this temporary city, you're expected to adhere to a few principles like radical inclusion, radical self-reliance, radical self-expression, and the environmental standard of leaving no trace, to name a few. And apart from the price of the $475 ticket, the $140 vehicle pass, and how much you'll be spending on supplies, money, for the most part, is no good here. And they don't call it trading or bartering, they call it gifting. You're expected to give with a generous spirit and receive graciously. On the penultimate night of this whole experience, an effigy of a man, as high as 105 feet tall, is lit on fire. That is Burning Man. It's been going on since 1986. So what happens if there's an emergency at Burning Man? What else? You call 911. And if you do, you might hear the voice of this guy. Tonto. That's, I, I go by Tonto Goldstein. And at Burning Man, everybody has a burner name. And currently my Burning Man name is the Hebrew Hammer. I figured that since Tonto's been volunteering as a 911 dispatch operator there for six years, he may have one or two or three stories to tell. And a word of warning, well, some of these are really funny. Some of them are not. And if you're not into hearing some of the more difficult circumstances around 911 calls, give yourself a break. And we'll see you for the next episode. Here are just a few stories from Tonto. So there's a few thousand people partying. It was two o'clock in the morning. No lights. It's in the middle of the desert. The only lights are from the DJ stage and whatever other lazy lights or LED lights they got going on and whatever, ever, where, every, whatever people are wearing on their costumes that light up. So there's no floodlights. Really hard to see, but the call came in that there's a possible man with a gun. So we've been volunteering there for quite a few years and I've never gotten that. So, it, you know, passed it on to the law enforcement because we cannot handle that if there's somebody with harm intentions i actually want law enforcement and it turns out after 45 minutes it came back as unfounded next morning i call up my supervisor and i went oh this so what's the story it's like it's kind of hard to go from a man with a gun to nada you know it's like oh well the, the rangers went out looking and it turns out it was just a man with a large you know, personal pleasure device in a holster on his side that was black. And somebody in the audience saw him walking around with the device inside a holster and got alarmed. It was a terrifying moment at first, but afterwards we all had a really good laugh about it. So nobody got hurt in a way that they didn't want to. I have no idea. Like, in all honesty, I never followed up with the, the gentleman that was carrying that device in a holster. He might have regretted it the next day. I have no idea. But whatever he did, we, he did with full intentions to himself. <laughs> so tell me about the call you got about a seizure. 
we get a call from one of the volunteers uh, that works in maintaining the city infrastructure, DPW, says we have, uh, he has a possible uh, a female having a seizure further out in the, the middle of nowhere, middle for further out on what's called deep playa. So yeah, we, we dispatched, uh, we sent out one of the mobile units as well as an ambulance to back it up. First, you know, based on our protocols, whatever our protocols are. So after about five minutes, I call them and I ask them if they have an update. You know, like I need to mark them in our dispatch system, whether they're transporting or, or treated and released or they got an AMA or whatever the case may be. And they said, no, we're all clear. We're good to go. And like, you know, you, how do you go from a female having a full-on seizure where everybody can see it to we're all clear to go? Did you provide any assistance? I said, no, she was just doing yoga. And then just for, for a moment there, I could not respond. And, and yep, but that's how we put it into our system. She was doing yoga. It's kind of weird. In this civilian world, every once in a while, you'll get weird calls and it's unfounded or false alarm. I don't, how does this fall? Does this fall under unfounded or false go alarm. vigorous yoga? It's vigorous movement. She, she was enjoying <laughs> herself. So she was doing, again, with the right intentions. She was doing something correct, but a concerned citizen called it in and asked us to check up on her. And we did. Well, I'm, I'm glad she's okay. I'm glad she hopefully lived to tell the tale. Uh, you, what, what about the story you were mentioning where you, you heard engine three man down? Yeah, that's, that was a rough one. That, that's, um, that's a, the famous when, when uh, the gentleman ran into the burn and, and, you know, we had to get him out to the hospital ASAP. He ran into the that burning man sculpture that that they do at the end he did he he actually did run into the fire and, and the, the coroners did an investigation and i i honestly don't know if they consider it suicide or accidental or altered state of mind or whatever the case may be but yes ultimately he ran into the fire and an engine three called an engine three man down and you know it took us a good solid two minutes to get any more details but for those you know 90 seconds or so it was probably the one of the most terrifying moments in my volunteer life. When you get a call, you really have no idea what to expect. I mean, it could be something <laughs> ridiculous and funny, or it could be something really difficult like that. When that phone call comes in, what happens in your mind? It depends on the severity. The vast majority of calls that we get are for the mundane that we expect. And there's a lot of heat exhaustion and twisted ankles and whatnot. So those you get to expect and, and you hope it's for the best and you'll hear it when somebody's calling in and it's uh, uh, a serious of nature, but it's, it's rough, but it's, it's extremely delightful to be able to serve the community like that. And the, the ones that, that volunteer do it out of their own good and out of their own heart. We want to facilitate the event. We want the folks to have a good time and come out and party and we get rewarded you know, just by being there and we get to party too. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. We all get to party <laughs> as well. And, and Perk of the job. Have fun. Oh yeah. You've used the words stressful, tough, delightful, and rewarding when talking about this sort of work. Is there a kind of person who does this kind of work, who would use words like that and say, yes, I would do that. I think it's somebody that wants to give back to the community and believes in what Burning Man is trying to do. So that is why I personally do this. I want to enable the world to interact, to experience, and to be able to see art. Regardless of what situation or conditions we live in, it gives us hope. And the folks that I work with, 
they are delightful. And they, for the most part, they have the same mentality. We want to enable this event. That is personally why I do it. Well, this has been wonderful. Tonto Goldstein, the Hebrew hammer. Is it okay if we let everyone know that oh, yes, you are the two, the, you're the same that, person? Okay. That is perfect. I don't know. I've never seen Tonto Goldstein and the Hebrew hammer in the same room at the same time, is all I'm saying. Nobody but has. Thank you. <laughs> but thank you so much for talking with me. It's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. By the way, because dispatchers so often don't know what happened with the people that they've helped, I thought about not telling you what happened with the rollerblading woman from the beginning of the show. But as we've learned, closure, when you can get it, is powerful. So as she was losing more blood and becoming dizzy, her friend rollerbladed the mile or so back to her car to come scoop her up. An emergency vehicle was right behind her as she came back and... They gently put her in the back seat of her friend's car and they went to the hospital. The bleeding was from an external laceration that they closed up. She was home safely that night. Thank you very much to the dispatcher who took my call. And thanks to all the dispatchers out there. All day. Every day. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious, and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to shows about things like what it's like having your arm ripped off by a tiger and then having it be featured as part of a super viral Netflix series. From search and rescue to police canines to the story of Laika, the first animal to orbit the Earth, how the ways we train our dogs says a lot about ourselves how a policewoman in Northern Ireland communicated her way out of locked-in syndrome using blinking, and what made Chris Thiele, arguably the best mandolin player on planet Earth, pick up the instrument in the first place, visit ctpublic.org audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wolf, and my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org, and online use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening.